The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's a real challenge there as a practical matter for a company that's experienced a cybersecurity incident of any magnitude to try to figure out, you know, whether they have tripped the materiality threshold or even if they're in the materiality zone, because it's such a, you know, the facts as as they evolve in the middle of a cybersecurity incident, um, there can be a lot of fog and it can be really messy. And it's not at all uncommon to have an incident that initially looks very severe and very damaging. But after, you know, 24 hours, another 48 hour cycle, another 72 hour cycle, as, as the investigation progresses and as you develop your forensic record, you learn that, in fact, the scope is more limited than initially feared or, you know, that. They just it's not as serious of an incident as it initially appeared to be. There are also incidents that go the other way. I'm Stephanie Pell, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 7th, 2023. On July 26th, the Securities and Exchange Commission adopted a final rule with new compliance and disclosure obligations surrounding material cybersecurity incidents. I sat down with Kate Hannaford, partner at Alston & Bird to talk about the requirements and challenges this new rule presents. We talked about some of the problems and concerns that caused the SEC to engage in a rulemaking process. When an incident rises to the level of a material cybersecurity incident, and whether the new rule is consistent with the National Cybersecurity Strategy's goal of harmonizing disclosure and reporting requirements for companies. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 7th. Kate Hannaford on the SEC's new cyber disclosure rule. Before we get into the substance of this rule, Kate, I'd like to talk about some of the reasons that the SEC decided to regulate in this area. What are some of the problems or concerns that caused the SEC to engage in a rulemaking process and ultimately to adopt a final rule? Sure. There, you know, the SEC kind of has this longstanding principle or notion that sunlight is the best disinfectant, and that by disclosing, uh, for example, risk factors, threat, threat management, and in this case, in, in terms of cybersecurity, that that. 
by by making public how companies are managing their cybersecurity risk, it gives investors the information they need to make better decisions. This rule specifically relates only to public companies um, or foreign private issuers, right? It's not registered investment advisors or broker dealers. These are U.S. companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges or they're foreign companies who have ADRs or American depository receipts that are listed on U.S. exchanges and then but may also be listed on foreign exchanges. And it cements the 2018 guidance that the SEC had initially proposed. Um, you know, the initial thinking was that this rulemaking would formalize that guidance in terms of the SEC expectations um, for what what kind of disclosures were appropriate. And it's it's good to have it's good to have a rule, right? It's that's the proper process. The SEC is supposed to make a rule and then it can enforce against that rule, not regulate via enforcement solely. Um, and you know, in theory, rulemaking is supposed to provide clarity to you know to those registrants and to the market. But I, you know, I think many companies were already considering or making 8K filings that were related to material cybersecurity incidents, um, and there were many companies that were already including cyber risk disclosures in their MDNA or man- management's discussion and analysis of their risk factors in their annual reports. So this this rule requires more disclosure and more detailed disclosure. But the SEC did that. Its its mission is investor protection and market integrity, and and under the efficient market hypothesis, it's you know it's designed to provide information to the market that can be factored into a company's stock price. And they felt that that it was necessary to kind of cement that in a formal rulemaking capacity. You mentioned eight K filings. Uh, for listeners who may not be as familiar with that terminology, can can you explain what an eight K is? Sure, and an 8K is a is a basically a, a special event or a material event um, filing that's used, and it's it is it's kind of a, a kind of a special or a one off filing that can be made by a company if there is an event that kind of rises to a particular level and doesn't otherwise fall within the periodic reports that the company is making and isn't you know related to. There are all sorts of other filings that can be made based on different types of transactions um, that can occur. Um, but an 8K is, is and, and then for foreign private issuers, the analog is 6K, is something that is, is filed when a company has something material to say to the market that doesn't really fit into any of the other categories of filings that otherwise exist. So the rulemaking process that resulted in the final rule that you mentioned had a notice and comment period that began when the SEC released its proposal for this new rule in March of 2022. For those listeners who may not be familiar, can you describe generally what happens during the rulemaking process and the notice and comment period? Sure. And I guess there's, <laughs> there are kind of two answers there. The first is the usual process. And then the second is what happened here. So typically, the SEC staff will propose a rule. There's a comment period where anyone, any member of the public can comment on the rule and the SEC staff will review those comments and then revise the rule accordingly. You know, it, it doesn't take all of the comments, but it will, they, they do really review the comments, think about them, and incorporate them where appropriate, make revisions to the rule. And then they have the, which then kind of becomes, you know, almost like a final rule. But the commission then, which is the five commissioners, will vote on the final rule. Then the final rule is released. 
and it's published later in the Federal Register, and then it becomes law. And so that's a, it's a very well-trodden path um, to federal rulemaking that has that kind of notice and comment period. So everybody knows what's coming. There's a period of revision. And then we have the final rule. There's some period to come into compliance and, you know, before the rule takes effect. What happened here was that in the spring of 2020, they proposed the rule and they had a comment period. Um, and the SEC staff is reviewing the comments. But it turned out that the comment function, like, basically had a glitch. And so the SEC then had to go back, you know, many months later, reopen the comment period. Um, and then in that same period of time, the White House released the National Cybersecurity Strategy Plan, which directs agencies to harmonize their regulations across agencies as well. So, you know, there were, you know, some events basically overtook, you know, this this process. Um, and, and the SEC has been under, I think, you know, fairly significant pressure to finalize these rules because all of the other primary federal financial regulators already have analogous rules in effect. Um, and whereas the SEC was relying on, you know, 2018 guidance, for example. So, you know, here the SEC did align, you know, the, you could see the SEC aligning on a single definition of cybersecurity incident for its registrants because there's companion rulemaking that it's trying to, to also sequence for registered investment advisors, broker dealers, business development companies and the, you know, exchanges, other, you know, kind of systemically important entities um, that it regulates. And so, you know, the SEC rather is, is, is really focused, I think, on harmonizing across its own agency rather than with these other agencies. But if you kind of step back into the con, you know, the broader context of rulemaking, um, it's, it's playing catch up a little bit. So we have a final rule now, as, as you've said, and I'd like to talk about its key elements, requirements, and definitions. And, and I would note that you are, in your role, currently providing advice to companies about this rule. So let's start with, with a big one. What are required disclosures of material cybersecurity incidents? You know, what is under this rule a material cybersecurity incident. So cybersecurity incident is defined under the rules. That's that's defined as an unauthorized occurrence or a series of related unauthorized occurrences on or conducted through a registrant's information systems that jeopardizes the confidentiality, integrity, or availability of a registrant's information systems or any information residing therein. So it's a you know, it's a data breach, <laughs> put, put crudely, but it's a very expansive definition of what a cybersecurity incident could be. Um, something unauthorized on your system that jeopardizes confidentiality, integrity, or availability of your systems or the information on your systems. That's defined in the rule. The concept of materiality, what is a material cybersecurity incident, is far more complicated Materiality itself is a bedrock concept under the federal securities laws, and materiality is, is to be evaluated based on the total mix of qualitative and quantitative information. In lay terms, it's basically what a reasonable investor would find important to its decision making, and so it's a highly subjective standard. As a practical matter, 
you know, most companies have quantitative materiality thresholds because that's something that is is set in the course of their SOX controls and their their reporting. They need, it's a metric that they need to know in working with their auditors. Um, quantitative materiality, just in terms of the, you know the amounts of of money or you know the the amount of financial hit that an incident could cause, is not something that is known immediately except in, I would say, the rarest of circumstances and certainly not known with certainty. So I think we kind of set that aside in this discussion. And and most of the, the focus right now is really on qualitative materiality. And what does qualitative materiality mean in the context of a cybersecurity incident? It's a very challenging concept to think about because every company is different and every cybersecurity incident is different. Um, and materiality, particularly qualitative materiality, is a pretty holistic assessment of, you know, you have to look at the scope of the incident, the data that was involved, you know, the history and context of the company, the governance processes that are in place, whether they worked, the business impact, which, of course, is not necessarily known immediately, reputational damage, litigation and regulatory risk. There are so many different components that can go into that. You know, certainly, you know, the impact of a potential disruption to the business operations or internal controls is going to be a pretty key focus. And then it's it's some other types of assessments of harm, you know, to your customers, your vendor relationships, competitive advantages, your reputation, and then legal and regulatory risk. And, And there's, you know, at some point you would also consider actual, you know, unexpected direct and indirect costs stemming from the incident. But this this rule requires that you file an 8K within four days of determining that you've had a material cybersecurity incident. And that determination must be made without unreasonable delay. So there's a real challenge there as a practical matter for a company that's experienced a cybersecurity incident of any magnitude to try to figure out, you know, whether they have tripped the materiality threshold or even if they're in the materiality zone, because it's such a, you know, the facts as, as they evolve in the middle of a cybersecurity incident, um, there can be a lot of fog and it can be really messy. And it's not at all uncommon to have an incident that initially looks very severe and very damaging, but after, you know, 24 hours, another 48 hour cycle, another 72 hour cycle, as, as the investigation progresses and as you develop your forensic record, you learn that in fact the scope is more limited than initially feared or, you know, that you just it's not as serious of an incident as it initially appeared to be. There are also incidents that go the other way that initially appear minor. And then as you learn more and more, they, it turns out that it's actually, you know, much more pervasive or much more serious in terms of the nature and scope of the incident. So it's a very fluid process during that investigation to try to assess, you know, what is actually material um, and, you know, kind of where are we in that process? So I want to focus then on the concept of scope. What what is the nature and scope of the required disclosure, especially as a company would be looking at an incident that may be evolving? Sure. And that's actually, I think, you know, I think it's a little bit of a bright spot, you know, in terms of where the rule ultimately landed. Um, you have to describe the instance nature, scope, timing, and impact, including actual or likely impact. And there is some recognition that not all information is going to be available necessarily at that time. 
And so then they've also asked that you file an amendment with additional information if, if it's required information, but that if that information was not determined or unavailable at the time of the original filing. Um, that's really, I think, very challenging ask for a company because one of the, you know, as an axiomatic principle that you don't want to ever make a disclosure to the market that you're going to need to have to correct. And you want to be certain that what the information that you are providing is accurate and true at the time that you are making it, but that you have the confidence that it's not going to be changing going forward. And of course, when you're in the middle of firefighting an actual incident, um, facts change. And there are a lot of different kind of factual developments that can happen over the course of an incident that can impact your assessment of it and and that materiality. I, I think one, you know, if you look, go back and compare this to the the proposed rule, the proposed rule actually asks for a lot more information in the Form 8K, um, and the SEC dialed that back based on comments that it was really asking for a lot of sensitive information that was inappropriate and not needed by the market. Um, it, it really read kind of like what the SEC staff wanted to know rather than what was actually necessary and, and was not appropriate given the potential risk to the company because the company may be making this at a time where the incident is not fully contained. So you touch on an important point then, sort of taking us back to the notice and comment period. There were, as I understand it, some significant concerns raised with the proposed rule during that period. What were they? And do you think that the final rule addressed those concerns? You know, they, so the initial concerns were, one, that they were asking for a lot more, far more detailed information that was actually needed or that reflected in some cases industry standard. For example, they also initially wanted disclosure of whether or not there was a cybersecurity expert on the board um, and companies no longer need to disclose that um, in their 10K filings, for example. But as it you know specifically relates to the breach reporting issue, there, there were numerous comments about, you know, the, the need to harmonize breach reporting consistent with the national, you know, cyber plan and also just practical considerations to help companies comply with this. I, I, I see, I see clients who want to do the right thing and want to get the disclosures right, want to provide needed information. But the SEC really brushed off concerns about you know, the current process for reporting to and working with law enforcement and, and seem to kind of show truly, you know, pretty minimal appreciation that companies that are in this position are oftentimes victims of international organized crime rings or worse. And let's not forget that in 2022, U.S. law enforcement, CISA, the FBI, NSA, designated ransomware as a national security threat. Yet, if you look at, if you search the final rule for any acknowledgement of the concept of, you know, systemic risk or widespread impact of ransomware on public companies, you will not find it. And so I, I think in this regard, the SEC really missed an opportunity to adjust its rules to the reality of the threat environment and the role of other federal agencies in cybersecurity and, and to be consistent with the National Cyber Strategy Plan, um, because companies are are really struggling to, to try to, you know, manage these threats and, you know, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when um, and, you know, how serious the incident will be. Um, and, you know, we work really hard with our with our clients. And I know, you know, most market participants work really hard to, you know, achieve a really good level of, of security. But the standard is reasonable security, not perfect security. 
And, you know, I just, I don't think that the SEC really showed an appreciation for how hard it is to maintain those defenses, but also how hard it is to respond to an incident and meet all the different needs that you have, both in terms of the reporting obligations that exist there, as well as reporting to law enforcement um, and coordinating, you know, that component of it, which I think is a very serious consideration. Um, And I'm not sure the SEC got the balance right here. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, 
but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So that leads in to the next thing I want to cover, and, and that's that the rule also provides exceptions uh, which allow a delay of a required disclosure. One of those exceptions comes into play when the Attorney General of the United States notifies the SEC in writing that the disclosure possesses a substantial risk to national security or public safety. First of all, can you give us a hypothetical example of what might fit into that definition? You know, the classic classic example would be the advanced persistent threat from a nation state actor where you have, let's say it's, you know, Iranian or Chinese or North Korean um, or Russian backed actors that have gained access to an information system. And that information system is designated as critical infrastructure or has sensitive IP. That would be something where you could you could see definitely see an argument that there is a substantial risk to national security or potentially public safety. And from an operational perspective, how do you think the notification process would work? Who would initially contact the attorney general? So it's a great question. Um, the, you know, the final rule does not lay out this process. I mean, it's important to note that the initial rule didn't have a law enforcement delay or exception. Um, and there's currently up in, you know, and for companies that are not SEC registrants, there's there's a current process where if, if you experience an incident and, you know, you report it to the FBI or in some cases the Secret Service and you work with them, the FBI, and then, you know, as the case progresses, the U.S. Attorney, um, U.S. Attorney's Office will work together. And of course, the U.S. Attorney's Office will roll up to the DOJ. Um, so as to this process, you know, I think, you know, one would hope that they would use the well-trodden path in that regard. You know, I think the one thing that is clear is that the DOJ will communicate to the company that it has received the delay, that the attorney general has made that designation or made that communication to the SEC based on its determination. I, I think the real X factor here is, you know, one, what is going to, to constitute a substantial risk to national security or public safety, because 
I mean, we, we know that, you know, ransomware has been designated as a national security threat. I don't think the SEC intended for every garden variety ransomware attack to be viewed as a substantial risk. But you can certainly envision scenarios where coordinated attacks on certain market sectors could rise to that level, even if it's not by a nation state actor, for example. So, I, you know, I think that's a process that's likely to play out, you know, largely behind closed doors. But, you know, you and I both know that those cases don't resolve quickly. Um, and, you know, the FBI in particular has also been, you know, very active. We've seen increased activity over the past couple of years in, in their takedown operations. And I know the Secret Service also has been working hard on that as well. I mean, all, all federal law enforcement is focused on that. And so, you know, the, the timeframes that they have provided here, I'm not sure that actually squares with the reality. And it also totally ignores the fact that there are, you know, many instances where, you know, the U.S. attorney is and the FBI is working to bring a case and it doesn't pose a substantial risk to national security or public safety, but it's still worth fighting crime. So I, from what I interpret you're saying is there's a lot we don't know, perhaps, about how this exception would be interpreted. And it it may be framed too narrowly, given the wider ransomware threat environment and the kinds of investigations that are often undertaken by U.S. attorneys' offices and the FBI. That's right. And the other point of this that I think is important is that this is a delay. It doesn't excuse reporting. So any company that files the delayed 8K runs the risk of immediately attracting more attention because every every company has to file an AK if you have a material cybersecurity incident. And you know, if you have an incident that poses substantial risk to national security or public safety, you know, that may not be the same as a material cybersecurity incident. It could be that you get to the point where it's actually very serious in one hand, but it's actually not material to the company. I don't know, but that would be a decision point. It wouldn't necessarily be automatic. We would want to think about that. But it certainly sounds like there's a scenario where you can have a material cybersecurity incident that also gets one of these law enforcement delays, and then you have to file a delayed 8K. And that runs the risk of immediately attracting more attention because people are going to think, well, gosh, it was like a really serious attack. And that just puts more spotlight on the company. And so it's hard to see how that process would not re-victimize a company as a practical matter. I don't, I don't think the process for seeking a law enforcement delay and cooperating with law enforcement was broken. If anything, you know, it's, it's, it is challenging to talk to clients about, you know, how the FBI can be helpful because the FBI isn't seeking to re-victimize companies. They're trying to fight crime. And it's very hard to do that for a whole number of <laughs> ways and a whole number of reasons we can talk about on a separate podcast. But I don't know that this particular aspect was something that needed fixing in this way. I think we probably wanted more public-private partnership on this. And and my concern is that this, this particular reporting requirement is going to chill that. And that's ultimately detrimental to U.S. markets and investors. So there are some other exceptions for delay of disclosure that the rule provides. Any thoughts about those? You know, I, I think it's it's a really open area. I just, I think it's going to be a really evolving standard because I, the, you know, it's not clear how all of these new definitions, although, you know, we understand, you know, material, we, we've got some guidelines there for materiality. I think the notion of what is a substantial risk to public safety or national security 
is a is a loaded term, but it's also not at all well defined. And so I think, you know, as as to that and any other kind of, you know, permitted delays, we have to figure out what those really what they really mean. And then also what the impact to the company is going to be, because it's not it doesn't excuse filing. It just delays it. And so what is the impact and the risk to the company on delaying a filing? Is that company ultimately worse off if it delays the filing? Or is it going to be, you know, is it is it ultimately going to be, you know, less risky for it to file later? And I don't think those are easy questions. And I don't think the SEC has really provided a suitable framework for companies to work through that. Now, there are also separate disclosure requirements in this rule that pertain to a company's processes for assessing, identifying, and managing material risks from cybersecurity threats. Can you talk a bit about this disclosure requirement and what specifically it entails and and what its purpose is? Sure. I think kind of going back to that sunlight is the best disinfectant um, concept that, you know, the SEC has, you know, a longstanding principle where, you know, as, as long as you disclose how you are handling certain issues, you can let the investor decide the SEC isn't going to tell you, you have to manage your cyber risks in this manner, or you have to do it this way, but you do have to tell people how you are managing it so that they can assess it and make their own determination. And the SEC is saying investors need to know about your governance process for cyber risk management, given what that cyber risk landscape looks like and how pervasive it is as to all issuers, even if those risks may be different or there may be distinctions among the issuers, that cybersecurity is such an important issue that all investors need to be aware of how a company is managing it and that all companies need to be managing their cybersecurity risk appropriately. It's interesting, though, because there are a couple of studies of disclosures of public companies from 2018 to 2023, right? So from that initial SEC guidance to now. And most Fortune 100 companies are already making these disclosures, but some are not. And of course, the SEC wants all public companies to be making these disclosures of any size, not just big ones. And, you know, and the SEC's rationale is that nobody, nobody wants to go open kimono and say, well, we don't do much here. So by making this a requirement, it forces companies to handle cybersecurity appropriately. And it forces companies to kind of look and see what is industry standard, what is appropriate to be tailored to my company's risks and our particular management of those risks. Um, so it's good in that way that it's not prescriptive, but it, it does require that the company, you know, describe its process for identifying and managing material risks for cybersecurity threats. It has to disclose whether those risks from cybersecurity threats have materially affected or are reasonably likely to materially affect the company. It has to describe the board's oversight of cybersecurity threats, and it has to describe management's role in assessing and managing material risks from cybersecurity threats. The most notable change is that it does not require um, a company to disclose if they have a cybersecurity expert on the board, which had been in the proposed rule and was the subject of a, of a lot of a lot of commentary. So I want to talk about the timeline or sequence for this rule and its requirements taking full effect. We know that the rule has taken full effect, but there are deadlines later in the year uh, that address when these kinds of disclosures need to be made. C- can you 
fill in the gaps for me, please, on that. Sure. So that's, yeah, that's right. Is the, the rule took effect September 5th. Um, the reporting provisions, though, take effect as of December 18th for the 8K and the periodic disclosures. So, you know, as a practical matter, we know that threat actors are really active around the holidays. So January might be interesting in terms of AP activity. <laughs> I think that's when you can probably expect to see if there's going to be any pop in disclosure activity, it's going to be early in the beginning of the year. But that said, you know, plenty of companies are already, you know, most public companies already view, you know, cybersecurity incidents of any significance through a materiality lens and are already looking at whether or not when they have an incident of any significance, whether or not it is material. So companies are already having those those conversations in, you know, internally, particularly because, you know, they have other there's other regulatory reporting compliance, you know, requirements that they have to comply with. So it, I don't, I think it remains to be seen whether or not we really see a pop and whether or not that's related to threat actor activity or whether that's related to this new law taking effect. In terms of the periodic disclosures, what we just talked about with the cybersecurity risk management um, discussion, the first round of those disclosures will be in the new year for, for 10K filers. That's the annual report for issuers whose fiscal year ended December 31st. So around that February timeframe, you'll start to see um, 10Ks and, and 20Fs that have, you know, perhaps expanded or, you know, differently kind of focused cybersecurity disclosures in them. And of course, not all companies are on a fiscal year end, you know, that's, that ends in December 31. So for companies that end in September, for example, or March, they can kind of look to see what happens with these the first round of disclosures that they're kind of like the first penguins off the iceberg and they'll see, see what happens. And then they can jump a little bit later after their, their fiscal years ended March or September or whenever, but you'll start to see that kind of pattern roll. So taking a step back for a moment and if for a broader perspective about the rule, do you think that the rule addresses the purposes for which it was created? In terms of providing public disclosure of material events and achieving a baseline expectation for broader cyber risk disclosures across all public companies, yes, I, I think it, it achieves that. But, you know, at what cost? Because I think there are, you know, examples that were raised in the comments or that you can envision under the final rule that pose very challenging compliance scenarios to public companies that increase the risk to the company. And it's not clear that this rule provides commensurate benefit to the investors in those circumstances. And that's ultimately what the rule was intended to do was provide important information to investors. You know, the SEC left the door open to modification. You know, we're particularly watching for the proposed rules under Circia. But you know, the SEC is kind of in a bind because it has these additional rulemakings in, in process for its investment advisors, broker dealers. And those rules involve confidential reporting to the SEC, right, which I think would, would probably solve, you know, much of the concern and consternation that you saw in the comments. Um, it, but it also solves that visibility gap where it gives the SEC visibility over what companies are experiencing and how they're handling it, but it would keep sensitive information confidential. The problem is that the SEC just does not have that framework for public company reporting. So as you noted, uh, this rule is part of a broader cybersecurity regulatory environment. And you mentioned specifically SIRSA. 
And, and you've also talked about the release of the National Cybersecurity Strategy in March of this year. And when that happened, uh, senior administration officials talked about the need to harmonize disclosure and reporting requirements for companies. You know, they want to cut down on duplicative and overly burdensome reporting requirements. Do you think that this new rule is consistent with that objective? Uh, charitably, it's, it is consistent as it relates to rulemaking within the SEC, that the SEC is aligning rules across SEC registrants. But if you put that in the backdrop of, as you say, the, you know, other federal regulatory obligations, and you consider the other regulatory reporting obligations that public companies can have, whether it's, you know, HHS, for example, or the GLBA safeguards rule or financial stability concerns, um, it does not achieve that. If you if you look just simply at, at you know, for, from a GLBA perspective, you have registered investment advisors, broker dealers, BDCs, exchanges, and, and GLBA covers, you know, its regulators are the SEC, the FTC, state insurance commissions, and other primary federal financial regulators like the OCC, Fed, you know, FDIC. They all have different cyber rules. And, you know, while the FTC aligned its updated safeguards rules with the New York DFS, for example, and we see some alignment there, the SEC could have aligned its definitions and processes with any of those other regimes, but it chose not to do so. And, you know, I should add, it's not, it's not like that would have been a panacea because some of those regulations impose even tighter reporting timelines, like 36 hours, 72 hours, three business days we've seen. So, we have a long way to go to achieve harmonization. And, and I think it's, it's, you know, to the extent that the materiality definition applies to, you know, the reporting issuer, which is oftentimes the holding company or the parent company, you know, we may also see instances where you have an impact at an operating sub that may trigger reporting under one regime, but not under another. So I, I think we still have a very fragmented a very fragmented reporting regime that, that we've got a long way to go to achieve harmonization. But the intent and purpose of the National Cybersecurity Strategy Plan is good, and we should we should keep using that as our reference point to try to get there. You know, and I, I think it's a fair point that the SEC made in, in rejecting some of these um, criticisms, which is that you know not every public company is in critical infrastructure, and not every critical infrastructure company is a public company. There is just a lot of different overlap. But it's 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 really it's really messy right now, and and this unfortunately didn't make it any cleaner. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? You know, I, I you know kind of keying off of what we just said, I I think we are going to need to decide the priority ranking of disclosure for reportable cyber incidents. And where we are right now is that the SEC requires the company to tell the market about material cyber incidents before the company may have contained an incident. And before the individuals or business partners whose sensitive information has been impacted may be notified. And I really struggle with that outcome. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now then. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org support. 
you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.